When I was a seminarian up at Mount St. Mary's in Emmitsburg, Maryland, once a week we would receive a visit at the seminary from a woman we called Sister Riche. She was not a member of a religious order, but she was consecrated to the Lord as a hermitess. Being a hermit or a hermitess is actually a recognized vocation in the church. It's not just a name we give to someone who lives a reclusive life. In fact, in the early centuries of the church, it was the original form of religious life. Religious orders, as we know them today, are actually an outgrowth of this original simple practice of individual men and women seeking to live closer to God by isolating themselves from society. And thus, even today, canon law recognizes this distinct vocation, where a man or woman enters the hermitic life by proposing to their local bishop a plan of work and prayer that they will accomplish while living in relative isolation from society. The bishop then receives their vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, just as he would do for a man or woman entering a religious order. The reason that Sister Riche visited the seminary regularly was because she supported herself by taking sewing and mending jobs from the seminarians and the priests at the seminary. She would never quote a price. She simply expected the recipient of her services to offer a fair sum. Sister Riche was quite loved by the priests and seminarians, and not just because she was very good at her job, and not just because we found it interesting that she was living out this unique and today fairly obscure vocation, but because we could see how holy her life was, how her vocation as a hermitess, precisely because of its simplicity and purity, was such a sign to us of God's presence in the world. I remember one time while I was a seminarian, I described Sister Riche to a friend or relative, I forget who, but this person was not themselves very religious. And they said, that sounds horrible. What a limited life, living on some remote mountain in Pennsylvania with little contact with other people, except coming to the seminary once a week to pick up sewing jobs. In the second reading, St. James warns us against being partial to the rich. It's a very natural tendency that people have because by the world standards, having money means having power. But there are, of course, other forms of power that we worship as well. Good looks, intelligence, athletic ability, social popularity, a charismatic personality. All of these are valued apart from the, the spiritual and moral goodness that is the true measure of a person. St. Benedict gave his monks a set of rules for living in the monastery. That's why he is the patron saint of monastic life. These rules can basically be boiled down to two. Ora et labora, prayer and work. These are the two foundations of Benedictine life. Indeed, they are the foundations of any life well lived. Now, of course, some people might say, what about marriage and family? What about the love of neighbor? What about the cultivation of art and beauty? Well, all of those things are important, but unless they are rooted in a proper understanding of prayer and work, our pursuit of those things quickly becomes disordered. When our lives are not ordered by the rhythms of heartfelt prayer and edifying work, our ability to recognize and cultivate those other things suffers. 
So the problem is not with a person who is content to spend their life praying and practicing a simple manual trade. The problem is with us, who see that life as perhaps an object of scorn, or at best, pity, because it means that we don't properly understand the true value of prayer or work. What many people fail to grasp is that all human work, whether spiritual work like prayer or work in the more conventional sense, has both an objective and a subjective value, meaning that it has a value both to the person doing it, which is subjective, and a value to the society as a whole, which is objective. In the case of prayer, its objective value is often hidden by our inability to discern the work of God in the world. That's a topic for another day. But in the case of work in the more conventional sense, labor, we have a tendency to only see the objective value, meaning the measure accorded to it by society at large. In other words, its commercial or economic value. Now that value is not unimportant. Certainly it's legitimate to recognize that some types of work have an objective worth to society that is greater than others, and to compensate those who undertake those jobs accordingly. Obviously, being president of the United States or the CEO of a large corporation are jobs that have a lot of things riding on them. In the objective sense of things, it makes sense to accord them a higher salary and status than, say, making burgers at McDonald's. That financial differentiation is necessary, as the Catechism teaches, in order to motivate people to undertake difficult or specialized occupations. But our faith also teaches something that John Paul II made explicit in his encyclical Laborum Exertions, that work has a subjective value to men and women, in that work fulfills our need to experience a certain mastery over aspects of the created world, so that we might recognize ourselves as the images of God. Exercising our reason and our bodily powers over nature in a suitable way demonstrates for us and reminds us of our connection to God. In that sense, the simple manual tasks that we might associate with hermits or monks or nuns, such as sewing or farming or cheesemaking, demonstrate this spiritual connection between ourselves and our labors in a way that many modern occupations, dealing with, for example, technology or finance or other such things, often do not. As our nation prepares to celebrate Labor Day tomorrow, it's important to keep in mind that as Catholics, we should be celebrating both the objective and the subjective value of work, but primarily the subjective. Celebrating work for the good that it does the person doing it as an expression of their personal vocation, more so than the economic contribution that work makes to the society at large. That's why our faith teaches that unemployment and underemployment are such grave social evils, because they wound human dignity over and beyond any mere economic loss to that person. That's also why St. James teaches later in his epistle that the sin of withholding the wages of a man who has worked in your field is a sin that cries out to heaven. Failing to pay someone the money that they are owed is always a grave sin, of course. But the scriptures teach that it is especially heinous to deprive someone of their wages for work done, because to do so is an insult to the subjective dignity of work. 
It is not merely an economic loss to that person. It's robbing that person of a piece of their life. We see in the gospel reading today that Jesus healed the man who was deaf and mute. But it's interesting, in doing so, he puts his fingers in the man's ear and puts saliva on his tongue. Although Jesus is working a miracle, he is imitating the kind of physical actions that would have been performed by a healer in his time. In other words, he is showing us, even in the midst of performing a miracle, his solidarity with an ordinary human job or vocation, just as he did in practicing the trade of carpentry that had been handed on to him by his father Joseph. Jesus is showing the connection between the spiritual and the temporal, between the sacred and the secular, between the ordinary and the extraordinary, between prayer and work. That's the connection we need to make this Labor Day.